Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the Wild User Interviews produced by the Silicon Craftsman Guild with me, ABB. I am extremely excited with our guest today, Ozzy Mendias. You may know him from literally anywhere across the near ecosystem. <laughs> NTS founder, DGen general, and many other hats, some public, some yet to be disclosed. Welcome, Ozzy. Thanks. Really happy to be here. Really happy to have you. So the role of the podcast is to have open-ended user interviews, and we define as our users basically anyone contributing to the near ecosystem. They could be as early as maybe some product manager or designers of people with ideas wanting to come over to near. So we want to understand what are the challenges, what's interesting for them, how can we create a better experience, all the way to experienced founders or somebody from the foundation, like deeply vested into the near ecosystem. So today I believe that you are on the latter end. You bring possibly, possibly, probably actually a mixture of both ends, but, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, we shall see today a bit. So yeah, today I am very interested in deconstructing what is like the anatomy or the makeup of a great community leader. And especially I think that we can see that through some of the many hats that you wear. In particular, I guess I want to start by thanking you publicly because it's interesting how you you embody some of those like beliefs and experiences that I had before and that have come to be true. So I spent many weeks and many months technically unemployed, doing some freelance consulting here and there to pay the bills, but spending most of my waking hours just researching crypto and spending a lot of time on like forums and chats. And my friends and my family were a little bit concerned. <laughs> <laughs> about my life and my prospects. But I was like, you know, if you dedicate to something you're passionate about and you keep improving and growing in the space, opportunities will come your way. So yeah, I'd like to thank you for, you know, reaching out proactively. I remember the message you were like, hey, what is your day job? And extending me the opportunity to increase my involvement with Near. So thank you. Yeah, no worries. I actually don't even remember how far back that was, but I just, for me, it was like one day you were peripherally there. And then the next day you were just there, like a fundamental part of everything that was going on. And then the rest, it was just like, it was always there. And I, and I, I don't even, I don't even remember when you like jumped on full time and when this became what it is, but I'm happy it, it happened. Well, I'm happy. This is a shared memory. It makes me feel very special. I, I guess it, it's interesting that you mentioned the timeline because it feels like it was very recently and it also feels like it was like ages away. So I guess that leads me to my first question. How do you identify people to bring them to the forefront or, or yeah, I guess elevate them. And I guess I wish you probably add a bit of context from your own guild for NTS. You actually took several members to start their own guilds and, that formula of getting to know people in a initial working capacity and then enable them to grow into their own projects has been repeated over and over through the DGENs and other projects. So I'm just really interested to see how you approach those relationships and what would be the characteristics that you'd be looking for in that next potential leader. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a couple of ways you can look at, you can look at that, but I can say speaking from our experience, at least of identifying the individuals, bringing people in, a lot has to do with playing to the strengths of who the person is, and then almost mentoring them and guiding them. And more than anything, giving them the kind of confidence that you believe in them and that you think that they can do a good job. So every single person that we brought in through ants had no crypto background. So they were completely raw. And when we move them through our system, we pretty much teach them everything, how to write, how to interface socially, how to interact. But the, it's a two-part so two process. They need to be willing and open to taking this chance and to giving it their best shot and to walking out on the glass bridge where they don't know if they're going to get caught or they're going to fall. And that's really hard, especially when you get into crypto at first and you don't really understand anything that's going on. The, the vocabulary is 
crazy. The pace is crazy. So much is happening and you're overwhelmed. So the individual has to be willing to get over themselves and take a risk and accept that they could fall and fail and make an absolute fool of themselves. And then on our side, our job is to identify their strengths, feed their strengths, and then basically just make them believe in themselves and basically make them believe that they can do a great job if they just keep working at what they're doing. And that's what we replicated with our writers, with our designers, with our managers, with everyone who's gone through ANTS follow that same process. And I'd like to say it works because they're all still in crypto. In fact, they're deeper in crypto. And then the worst part of all of it is that once they get really good at it, then they go off and do their own thing. And then you lose that talent. You have to go find more talent because they outgrew you. So yeah, that's a, the system. Now, one thing I will say that's really interesting, not wanting to be too biased is the underlying mindset of the culture or the individual has played a huge role. We've had a lot of trouble with Americans, fun, funnily enough. I, I'm an American and uh, maybe you could say this is something that's seen in other areas of business, but the, the people that we work the best with are the ones who are, they're able to endorse the crypto mindset of win and help win. So they're not looking for immediate value for work. They're looking to saturate an atmosphere and participate in a process, and they can trust that the value will come from doing that. Those kind of people who come in and they're like, okay, when are you going to pay me for this, bro? Are you going to give me money to do this? Those are the type of people we don't normally want to stick with in the long haul because crypto is so multifaceted. It moves so quickly. You really invest in a person and their capacities more than a single individual job or a single individual activity. So we've actually had trouble keeping keeping people who can't buy into that mindset of, okay, I'm going to trust this and I'm going to just give it my best and trust that it's going to work out as opposed to having a guarantee in paycheck or reward ratio for what I'm doing kind of thing. There's so much there. (laughs) (laughs) I, I didn't know that most of the ants people were not crypto natives when they came to ants. That's amazing to hear because obviously that is something that we're trying to replicate with Silicon. Our core belief is that crypto has matured enough that we need to start bringing in creative problem solvers, as I described them broadly, designers, product managers, just all walks of life, philosophers. And it's a challenge to try to identify how those pathways should look like, especially because they can be so different for different people. But at least we want to broadcast a message that we're open for business. I'm actually engaged with a, he must be a well-known designer. He's got like 100,000 followers last uh, on, on Twitter. So he shared something like, if you're a junior, if you have openings for your company, if you're hiring for designers, share the opportunity on the comment section and I'll retweet and make sure that candidates come to you. And I left the comments saying, hey, we've got plenty of opportunities in crypto. If you're open-minded and ambitious and are willing to get your hands dirty, message me. And I've got five interviews booked for next week. Of They're not like job interviews. Like I don't actually have any specific roles for them, but I am looking at expanding the silly content, especially with mm-hmm. people that are coming from the design background. Because, you know, I'm actually quite uh, – honest in the fact that I myself don't have much of a design background. Like I started going into product and I'm passionate with enough to lead this initiative, but I am relying heavily with people that do have the experience and especially the experience of working within a proper tech company in that product role, because we're making things up as we go in crypto. So I'll probably be contacting the ants people to learn more about their playbook. Cause I think that there's a lot of things that we can learn there. The second thing that I find really interesting is the cultural aspect, because I was actually going to ask about your like upbringing and how growing up in the U.S. maybe shaped your worldview, because I am a strong believer, whether people realize it or not, their surroundings 100% shape them. See, I'm on the opposite end. I grew up in Venezuela, very corrupt, very fast paced, very like street smart, bribery sort of scenario. And I actually have a problem trusting people. I'm on the complete opposite spectrum, <laughs> which is why I think I admire your ability to trust people and to give them opportunities and to let them rise. Because I think I always wait a little bit too long to delegate or to trust someone. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I don't communicate where my 
expectations are coming from. It's something that I'm working on a lot. And so far, the Silicon team has two new people and growing. So I'd like to think I'm making some progress. And I'm also working actively with other teams and learning heaps from them. Claudio is amazing. And the Ref team and Rin are doing some great stuff. But yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that cultural aspect in a negative way. So clearly the United States, it's a very large country. I think that it shaped you in the right way. I guess I would describe as an abundance mindset. And obviously that abundance mindset may have negative aspects as well. Maybe there is so much abundance that why would you go work for crypto with outcome unknown when you can go work elsewhere for outcome known and still generous so yeah really interested to start to unpack your personal experience yeah the the first thing that that what you said really hit me was the the whole notion of trust and this is something i try to drive into people so much is if you really believe in what you're doing and you really believe in what you're building you should play the long game and what playing the long game means is that you are you're able to give up amounts of trust in the short term for basically uh, big rewards or big consequences in the long term. So if I bring someone in and I put them on a month trial to do something and I just say, yeah, here's some money, go do what you're going to do. If they take my money and scam me, I've lost a, mo- a month's worth of money, but they've lost out the long-term future of working in anything that I'm working in with them. And going forward, I'm going to basically make sure that they're not affiliated with anything I'm doing because they've violated that trust. Now, if they do really good on that short-term endeavor and overperform, then they start to win long-term trust for a a collaborative partnership deep into the future. And I really think that long-term mindset is something that is oftentimes completely missing. There's this kind of attitude of, oh my God, if I don't know for a fact that you're not going to fuck me over, then I can't give you this money. And I always like to say, no, like I'm going to give you, I'll give you the chance to fuck me over because if you fuck me over, then you're not going to be around in the long term. You're, you're going to miss out where everything we're going from here on out and it's your loss, pal. And to date in having that more trusting attitude of saying, we're going to, we're going to trust you to be an, an honest, mature human being. And we're going to basically open ourselves up to getting, to, you know, to, to being more vulnerable to, to problems. We end up winning more in the long run by following a strategy like that. Yeah. But, but what I would counteract, let's make this an adversarial podcast is I think there's two important aspects. The first one is how many times can you get fucked over until you're just not able to stand up again? Because that is a problem. There are some cultures of abuse of power and corruption and things may collapse tomorrow. So take literally as much as you can today. Zero fucks given about the person. Where you just can't take the hit. Like you must be in a good place to start with where you're able to grant people the opportunity because it's a loss that you can walk away from. Once again, abundance mindset. And the second aspect is it's about signaling. What are the vibes that you're putting out there? If I use your specific example, people don't necessarily reach to you and you don't give an opportunity to any random that reaches out to you. And there's no shortage of dubious messages, probably bots and scammers on on Telegram. You must have an internal process whereby you vet people and whether consciously or unconsciously, they reach a certain threshold where you message them and then you give them the opportunity. So I guess... That is the area where I'm interested in because I think that you and I would have very different thresholds mm-hmm. for what gives us enough confidence to reach out to someone. Because I'm the same as you, I'm especially because I've been living in Australia for a very long time and it's an abundance mindset. No one cares. You can walk away from anything here if things go wrong. But I do see that the test that you use to approach someone and give them the opportunity can really change. And as I said, I find that with my projects, I feel much more comfortable controlling the ship and working with a smaller group of people and I see that other people are much, much better at like rapidly delegating. And I think that both approaches are okay. Obviously you've got to play to your strengths. But I guess that I'm I'm interested in what your experiences have been growing up. I want to get back to that by the way, because because I think your qualifications are, are really fair and there's a lot in there about 
leading people effectively while also building relationships with them and trusting them. But so I actually have a bit of an unconventional uh, upbringing background. I was born in Boston, East Coast family, but grew up in the middle of the country in Nebraska for early childhood. Um, But then my father took us basically to live around Latin America and Central America for disparate amounts of time growing up. We did a couple years in the Dominican Republic. We did some time in El Salvador, did some time in Bolivia, time in Peru, et cetera. We could be doing this in Spanish, but I haven't practiced it for a a long while. You can talk to Grace about it. It, it, It's still there, but it's just really declined. Basically, all of that to say, came back to the States for high school, had a kind of traditional American high school, and then I left right away and went to Europe for all my studies. So... In terms of total balance, it's I've lived in the States just longer than I've lived outside of the States for my life, but it, it's not uniform. And I wouldn't say I have, I've taken pieces from the culture, but definitely not been fully inculturated in the mindset. It's an interesting mixture balance that you get from it. <laughs> I think it may be a self-selection bias that I resonate with people that even if I'm not aware of it, we've got similar experiences, but I get the impression that it's actually more common than not for people in crypto to have that kind of like mixed backgrounds or that it's up drinking, they've relocated, they're in a multicultural relationship. And I think that you could probably abstract it to the context switching framework, being able to entertain two cultures simultaneously or two or more. It's mind blowing. I love it. And I think I've told you I'm a bit of a digital nomad or well, I used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we were allowed to travel 2017, 2018, what I liked is that every country that you go, you realize that people can have a completely different view of the world and completely different set of beliefs and completely different traditions. And everyone gets along and no one gives a shit what anyone else is doing, whether it's another country, another town, another language. Like there is so much diversity and that is a true meaning of diversity and you can get along like the world is huge you know this weird obsession that everyone has to agree on twitter especially not knowing where the other person is coming from it's really strange to me so yeah i think that it certainly helps crypto people because the context switching that i see being relevant to us is both being able to live in the physical world and the metaverse So basically, we're trying to reimagine what comes after the digital world as we know it. It's not just a tool anymore. It is a world where we live in. And also, the other context switching would be time-wise. It's like breaking uh, the barrier of, of time and space and be able to live in the here and now and be able to determine what we have to do right now, what is needed, but also be able to visualize, you know, what is the future going to be like in 5, 10, 20, 50 years and building for that. I may even add an extra layer as I think we also have that in common of the past, having an understanding of how societies have evolved and built, the lessons that we can draw from them, etc. I'd agree. I think that the, especially when you talk about these types of people thriving in crypto, it really makes sense because Crypto is multifaceted as it is. You can't just be a developer. You have to have a more a diverse array of different skills, be they economic or social community-based or industry-specific. But the people who come from these mixed backgrounds, I think they're well-positioned to thrive in this multicultural, highly remote, highly fast-paced environment where you have to be flexible with difference and you have to be flexible with with a lot of different ways or approaches of doing something. Yeah, all in one family in a way. And I guess something that I would like to clarify, I would like to add, and I'm wondering whether you would agree with me, is that It's not an exclusionary characteristic. It's not if you haven't had a mixed experience, a multicultural experience up until now that you can't do it. Because I find that there's a lot of people that have that sort of like core mix of ingredients that enables them to thrive in that multicultural context or multi-metaverse context, whatever it's called. It's just that they've got to put themselves out there. So once again, I think that if there's anyone listening to these that maybe they've never left their town, like some of the kids that I was mentoring for a hackathon recently, they're, they're in college. 
one of them doesn't even have a passport. Like he's never been overseas. And he's, yeah, when the pandemic is over, not only am I going to leave my house because <laughs> we're not allowed to now, he actually wants to travel a lot. And he's you know, really interested by all the crazy stories that I tell from around the world. So I guess it'd be an invitation to explore that as much as anything else. Probably unrelated and very personal, but I actually traveled the world twice in 2017, 2018 with my Ethereum that I bought for 16 bucks. <laughs> so I would be a multi, multi-millionaire right now had I held the money. But in hindsight, I would not change that experience. I sold the Ethereum on the way up, but I felt feel that what I gained from those travels and the experiences and the people that I met, crypto and otherwise, it was way, it was worth more than money. So I guess that is a cautionary tale that as people's life situation changes, especially with crypto, it's actually not uncommon that people don't want to spend it. They're like, yeah, I bought it four bucks. It's worth 3000 but I'm never selling. Yeah, it's worth investing in yourself. If, if I could just add on to what you're saying, one of the biggest things I see as well is, is the opposite, where if you're not familiar with such constant change, there's a certain amount of fear in making this full send leap. It can be seen, it can seem so daunting getting into crypto, traveling around, nomading it, like you name it. And I think just in my experience, because not naming names, but we've brought a lot of people along who hadn't had their passport for the first time. And so you've had that experience where you're like, all right, like we're going to go here today. Next week, we're going to go here. Next week, we're going to go here. Let's do it. And what I've come to realize is that everyone can do it. Everyone can do it. They just have to, they have to be, they have to be in a position personally where they're ready to full send and they're ready to just get into it. And they're not going to look back. They're not going to worry about what if I had been doing this instead? They, they have to burn the boats and they have to focus on the future. Now, Ozzy, I think that we've spent a fair bit of time, like breaking down how to identify people with potential and put maybe a couple of tips there, travel the world for them and how to reach out. I'd like to move on to what would be like the next tier question, the next year of the same question. How do you identify potential projects both to spend your personal time in, but also to try to incubate, or I guess making even that matchmaking between the person and the project that they're going into. For instance, in our case, I proposed Silicon Craftsman as a product and UX to you. But I know that there's probably been a mix of projects that were new and you put people towards or you suggest an idea to someone based on their interests, whatever the arrangement may be. I'm just wondering if you've got decision matrix, like a framework to try to identify potential in projects within mm-hmm. the near ecosystem, which I guess the next and the ultimate tier would be why near and what you identify there, but maybe we can treat those two one by one. So I think maybe the best way of explaining it in the, in the form of a metaphor would be you can imagine the near ecosystem as like a constantly growing cocktail. And when you bring a new person into the ecosystem, you're just shuffling them around the cocktail party and bumping them into this person and you're saying hello. And then you're watching what's their body language tell you about how they hear about this per hear about this person. Do they chat a little bit, move on to the next person? Are they looking, you know, to get a drink? They're not interested. Okay. So basically like you just bring people in and you move them around the cocktail party and you just see how they organically react to the different things you show them. And more often than not, you'd be surprised where if you don't come in with a pre-planned objective, like, oh, I want this person to work on this, and you just let them do the figuring out and the showing, not only do they do a better job on whatever they land on, but they end up picking things that you might not normally have expected to be interested in or to want to work with. And I think for me, the biggest thing is keeping a little tally in your head of like where the ecosystem's at and what fundamental things the ecosystem might need that's pretty much the only real requirement. So if they're doing something that's somewhat reasonable within that domain of what the ecosystem needs and what's going on, I think it's best to let them self-discover what's going to really make them tick. And then they're more, not only are they more passionate, but they take ownership of what they're doing then because they selected what they want. So they're the ones who are saying, I had, I like this. I want to do this. You say, great, let's get after it. Let's do it. And then they're into it and they're ready to go. 
That's huge. I, I agree because I'll, I'm going to share some of my experience with Silicon or even with the DGENs. There was a period of time very briefly, shortly after I started with both groups, where it felt weird and I didn't quite enjoy it anymore. I was like, the moment that it feels like it is a job and like you have to do it and you have to be accountable to someone and there is no criteria and no benchmarks whether you're doing a good job or not, it became really stressful on me. And I thought, like, you know what? I may just keep doing the same thing that I was doing before for free because I don't know if I want to bring this stress on. And I think that it is very important to highlight that component of giving people freedom to take initiative and to give them the benefit of the doubt and to let them thrive in their own way because planned economies never work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, and, it is very just hard. To this, this is so important. You trust the person, not the project. So you really, from the very beginning, you, you have to decide, is this about getting something done or is this about seeing what this person can do that I might not have a full you know grasp over what comes from it? And in all of these scenarios uh, of what you're talking about, I think at least you have to trust the person first and foremost and let them take control of, of their own interests. 100%. Look, if there is anyone listening to this podcast and, and there had to be like a takeaway, this is a conversation that we can start more broadly. I would focus it in two groups of people. First, the decision makers with money. And second, people coming to the ecosystem who think that they can add value. The first one is I would strongly encourage everyone that is in a position to be a decision maker to embody that set of principles that you're describing. It's about the person. Do they have the right intent? Mm -hmm. We are all aware that these are experiments. Even this podcast is an experiment. No one may listen to it, but am I doing it in good faith? Are we trying to do something for the betterment of the ecosystem whether it succeeds or not and two two points there real quickly because this is super important so first point on that front if you're a funder and you have money in this space either you're looking at building a specific project or you're looking at funding and supporting a group of individuals who you have high confidence in i can i'm going to give you two examples here where the circular pathway tends to be more enriching and beneficial than the linear pathway. Okay. So the first industrial revolution, this was a big area of my school focus. So I was a graduate school teaching assistant for three years in economic history. And my focus there was on what were the conditions that led to the successful takeoff of the first industrial revolution in Great Britain and then Europe and then larger parts of the world. Notwithstanding the detail, cutting through a lot of the literature and the jargon, what we find is is that a highly social atmosphere, a highly um, engaged and talkative people willing to experiment and collaborate was the necessary prerequisite conditions, along with a good amount of, of virtue, a good amount of, I'm not in it for myself for the money, I'm in it because what we're doing is really cool was what kind of ruminated this whole thing to take off. That's the first example. So the largest wealth creation to date in the history of, in the history of recorded economic history was precedented in Great Britain by this highly social, amicable atmosphere among normally rich white elites. There's a lot of details in here of how the story was going at the time. The second example I want to give actually is a recent book by Donald Braben called scientific freedom and the elixir of civilization. And he talks about science and he talks about how it's funny how if you look at the greatest scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century by Max Planck, by Einstein, by Thomas Edison, even those people ruminated with these ideas for years, completely unproductively, completely sportively, just experimenting and letting their thought and their kind of intuition develop to a point where it could mature and they could really possibly deliver something. What he points out is that the moment you make a certain activity or a certain science strongly controlled, where you're saying, I'm only going to give you this much money if you deliver these results by this time, I'm only going to let you do this if you do this by this time, you actually stifle it. And you actually eradicate and suffocate those creative energies that allow for these really big breakthroughs. And so going to your point to the funders, if you're in crypto and you're looking to build something innovative and you're looking to build something really cool, I would really 
be careful and take note from the first industrial revolution and take note from the preconditions of the scientific revolution for what's really going to bring innovation. And more often than not, it's getting the right people in a room together and telling them to just play around and to not be stressed and to not be encumbered by tasks that are going to wear them down or dissuade them from doing it by inspiring them to really just let their minds run and share in the love of what they're doing. That's Those are the two points I just want to add your, to your funders part. Let's continue though. I, I like this thread. No, it's excellent. And I'm really happy that you added those points because I love that I'm going to add the book that you mentioned to my to-read list. And I was actually on Goodreads while you were talking, um, trying to find the name of the book. I can't recall right now, but I love it that it doesn't really matter what your source is. These things are very well documented and they're very well agreed upon, accepted. And it's crazy that we need to sometimes remind people almost in an argumentative way. The book that I read made some very similar points to what you mentioned. It was about scientific breakthroughs and revolutions. And it talks about the proximity of people, city centers where you have large groups of people from different walks of life and different levels of experiences and different levels of financial motivations. It's that clash of ideas and constant collaboration that pushes breakthroughs. We've seen it and through my travels, I've seen it. It is at the meetups in Barcelona from people from all over the world speaking in English and some weird person, onks known to everyone, buying pizza and beer and paying in Bitcoin. That's where you see a unique meeting of the minds. People self-select to be there and they're bringing their drive and their interest and the motivation. And there's always somebody with cash in the group. And that's where you see teams forming. So I think that it's fascinating to see how we're trying to bring the world closer through technology and asynchronous means and i'm extremely grateful for the telegram groups and the discords and all these places for keeping me sane during lockdowns but i am also mindful of traveling and trying to be closer to people but i think that to your point and if i love it that you were within academia so you probably lived it in, in a more visceral way this is why academia and government are never good at innovating because they've got the budget <laughs> And they've got 17 managers and everyone wants to keep their job. <laughs> and yeah, it's my risky. message. Innovation is risky. I think that's the other thing about it. If you're going to be in an innovative industry, you're going to want to disrupt. You're going to take risks. You're also going to have to accept failures. If you're not willing to fail, misspend and lose, then you shouldn't be in an innovative industry because that's the flip side of winning and building something really cool. Yeah, this is where I think that I can bring in some of my insights from like my legal hat from a previous life. The English legal system is hilarious. I think it's interesting. I think it's it's well thought for the tools that we had available at the time. Because a lot of crimes and a lot of the tests that you use to determine outcomes talks about the intent of the person matters. There is a defense to theft. If you honestly thought that somebody would have said yes to you taking the item had you been able to ask them, it is not theft. So I think that intent really matters. And I think that in crypto, especially for decision makers, where they have to understand the challenge that we have to grasp is if we do things right, every single dollar that we hand out is multiplied. And I can give you specific examples. The price of Veneer has grown, what, 5x since the hackathon was announced. The hackathon had $1 million in prices. Were there people running around saying that we're throwing money into the walls? That we were being too generous with prices? Oh, $5,000 price pool for a specific city. What if they only have two teams? What if the organizer knows a team? There will always be people that will question and criticize and I mentioned the two categories because they're different. We should be questioning things because, as I said, corruption can be everywhere and there's always room for improvement. But we need to have some sort of resilience towards people that only criticize. Because the truth is, the only way that we're going to grow the ecosystem and to grow the pie and to grow the valuation for everyone's holdings is through work. And, and we have to reward people that choose to show up and do the work. Yeah. And I'll also add on to that about there's something that's also forgotten in these discussions a lot, which is about direction and leadership. 
And what that means is I at least think that as a funder, you're, you yourself or the person that you have entrusted to deploy the capital that you're giving them needs to have some sense of responsibility of what they're hoping to achieve with that capital and what they're hoping to actually create and bring to life with what they're spending that money on. If they don't have a plan of what they want to do, if they don't have a vision of how, of, of where they're trying to get to with what they, the whole thing is a total mess, right? The, the leaders deploying the capital should have a very clear idea at a minimum of the landscape in which they're inhabited and the things in which they'd like to bring to life or they'd like to experiment with to see what could come of it. And so I always go back to saying ultimate responsibility always starts with leadership and you need to be willing to take responsibility as a leader in what are what is the kind of big picture goal of what we're trying to achieve with these kind of funds. And what that requires, though, again, which is something that is con- contextualized and hidden, is you need to have a very good understanding of orientation. You need to be oriented in your landscape, knowing, okay, what's the timing of this? Is it too early for a certain solution because there's not enough mass adoption? Is it too late for another solution because there's already 15 of them, right? What's the timing of this? What's the infrastructure cost? What's our environment around us? And so very specifically on NIR, I can make this very concrete, right? NIR is an emerging smart contract platform in the universe of chains. It's a world of dApps platform. It has one bridge built between it, between Ethereum and NIR, and soon Aurora will encompass that. And there's a second bridge with Binance Smart Chain. That is NIR's orientation. And your crypto landscape is you have your suite of DeFi products, your suite of creator economy products, your suite of governance DAO products, and then your suite of social tokens slash community experimentation products. Okay, if I'm, a, if I'm looking to fund something and I'm looking to deploy capital, my questions are, out of this landscape that I'm in, what is my goal? How am I going to achieve that goal as efficient as efficiently as possible or with the right people as possible? And what funds should I reasonably expect in achieving? And, and what happens in that cycle is all then on the responsibility of the leader. Final point on this topic is, and this is something as well that I don't think has been fully appreciated. Building affluent community members, meaning what I'm referring to in the sense of specifically something like the DGEN model, where they do great work, they're in before it becomes huge, they're rewarded handily for their work as the project succeeds. What you effectively do is you create an entirely new market of consumers within your ecosystem. So how would the NFT craze on Ethereum have taken off if you didn't have ETH users with excess, ridiculously excess amounts of ETH willing to spend ridiculous amounts of money on rocks. And so there's such a thing as a consumption base in crypto that should be fostered, especially in early stage ecosystems, because these people that are going to get money are going to reinvest it and they're going to bring to life new projects, right? So you, bolstering NFT economy requires people to buy the NFTs. Is someone who's new to crypto without a lot of crypto in their wallet going to spend the little amount of crypto in their wallet on something that's emerging and they don't know if it has value? Absolutely not. The people who are going to spend and risk their value are the ones who have it. And at the end of the day, if we're just getting off the ground, if it's just emerging, intuitively, I would say it's a better pathway to support this kind of cyclical consumptive economy than try to have a more controlled, planned, and you know slowly rolled out type of system because then you can't let the creativity and the innovation spiral on its own. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that it's, it's a really good segue. So yeah, I guess to recap, because we've done, done, gone down a few tangents, we're just trying to, I guess, identify the two key participants. We had the decision makers, and then we had the actual individuals coming to the ecosystem. So I think that if we slightly change focus to the individuals, we can tie it all back together. So I guess that my message to the individuals is, it requires a paradigm shift, and we've touched on this already. It is no longer about the project or the company, like you would have gone and work in a traditional sense. Like, truth be told, there are no job descriptions. It is about you. And this is something that it was actually quite empowering to me, and I want to give credit to James Wall when he said it, because it's something that I had felt already, but when he said it, coming from his position in the community team, in the foundation, it was really validating. He said, look, 
because I'd been showing up to a lot of ecosystem calls and I was everywhere. He was noticing as well. So he was encouraging me to put forward DAO proposals to basically start remunerating me for some of my contributions. And he said, to be honest, I think that we're getting to the point where you can put forward a, pro- a proposition just because of you as an individual. If you are recognized as having standing, you don't really have to link to all this one specific Twitter thread, which was how it became known. I did a Twitter thread from one of the town halls. You don't really have to link to that because once again, there is a problem in assigning value to one Twitter thread. It's $100, it's $300. How can you put value to a Twitter thread? It's not about the bloody Twitter thread. It's about the individual. The brains behind that Twitter thread are every day, everywhere they go, everything they learn, adding to the ecosystem. And you're not really paying backwards for the bloody Twitter thread. You're paying them to keep them around to continue learning. So this ties really well with having that ecosystem of wealthy people. Because let's be honest, most contributors start casual in their spare time at night on weekends. And this is something that is common. I'm big in the indie hackers community and the traditional startups ecosystem that's why I'm obsessed with bringing traditional product thinking and having not just a DAP, but having a business, having a product in the ecosystem. One of the biggest shifts that people can make is when they go from having a side hustle or a hobby project to having enough money to quit and work full time. So I do think that it is very important to create those pathways for people, for them to be remunerated handsomely so that they can dedicate more and more time. And once again, there needs to be some criteria, some common sense. Are these people adding value? Yes. Could they add more value if they had more time, if they had more resources? Like, I'm not shy to say that from the money that I've received through various means and grants and whatever, I paid for a $2,000 you know, design uh, sprint workshop. I was able to buy a new computer. I bought this new microphone. Am I able to do better work because I've invested thousands into improving and 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 bettering myself into the product space of course i am i am extremely grateful for these opportunities and part of the reason for having this podcast is how do we extend these opportunities to more people how do we put out the bad signal for people to know that their skills are needed they're valuable and even if they can't see exactly where they fit because what we don't know either (laughs) it's a dance that we're willing to entertain the funds are there The challenges to be solved are there. The opportunities with existing projects are there. Uh, A bunch of people like them to collaborate with are there. And just to go back full circle to what we said at the beginning, it it goes back to the kind of long-term vision of what you're doing. You can reward someone handsomely, and then if they stop doing work and they start basically showing their true colors of who they are, they're not just cut off the faucet temporarily they're cut off the faucet permanently because you've learned what their character is. So I think the mistake is that people sometimes in their head, they take a leap and they say, oh, you want to really incentivize and and reward people. How can we do this at scale forever? We're not. If someone's not going to keep doing their job, if someone's really going to stop delivering, uh, you cut them off. And, and, And the implications and the consequences of that are so much worse for that person than, than for the alternatives of what it could be. Yeah, I, I really think that you're onto something. There is a saying in, in the legal context, and there's been many high-profile cases decided on this one line. Timing is of the essence. If you are writing a contract, you're entering into an agreement, you're designing a framework to be executed on, whether timing is of the essence or not, it's a big deal. And I'll give you an example. I was going to New Zealand for a conference, Bought my flights, bought the conference tickets. I was traveling in my Venezuelan passport, so I needed a visa. The Kiwi bloody embassy took a month to approve the visa. I missed a conference. I emailed them and I was like, look, in my application, it was clearly stated I was going for a conference. New Zealand is a beautiful country. I'd love to go and visit when I have the time. But this application, timing was of the essence. And actually returned me the money. <laughs> they refunded the money because it was clear that within a certain time frame, it was no longer valid. So I think that what we also have to be extremely clear is people need to understand that the good times, like we have them now, they're not going to last. Like the opportunities to step up and be recognized and be on a chat with a co-founder of a huge platform, they're not going to last. I feel like it's a deja vu. 
I feel like the universe has smiled upon me because I already lived through this once through the Ethereum Foundation. Back in my day, I thought it was the Ethereum Foundation really truly was open to everyone. A bunch of people that I knew were getting grants, they were getting jobs, they were getting funded. And I was traveling the world. Now, I was not a dev, and to be honest, I don't think that I had enough understanding of many things at the time to fully realize that opportunity. But what became extremely clear over time was that as the Ethereum ecosystem grew, the foundation was further and further removed and the ability to access funds was further and further removed. It became a lot more competitive. And yes, the Ethereum community is still very supportive to new developers. There's still many ways to make money in crypto, but it's not nearly the same as what we have now. So it's a matter of acknowledging the opportunities as we have them now and really sizing them. A lot of people are really hungry to get into crypto, but the processes and the methods and the paradigm of doing it is very difficult. Whether you're working for tokens, whether you're working in an industry you're not familiar with, I I actually think that very few people really understand the paradigm shift of crypto and on a very deep-rooted philosophical level, how it means we have to change our relationships with each other, with our relationships with money, with our relationships with what we're building. But you need to have that mindset if you're going to contribute and build an effective product or an effective service in this new world. And that I think the, the task at hand right now is educating people and welcoming them, introducing them, chauffeuring them in a way where they feel comfortable, they see the opportunity and they want to really, they want to burn the midnight oil and they want to get up really early to do this. Because at the end of the day, this is, this is the thing I always say time and time again, is it's like ecosystems are like families or even like clans or even like countries insofar as like everyone wins when exceptional talent, exceptional capacity, and exceptional productivity is brought into the ecosystem. So as an ecosystem, we want to bring in the best people, just like a country is trying to attract the best scientists in the world to build something. Because those people, if they're building in the ecosystem, guess what? That's near denominated token, they're building it. Or it's near denominated PR that they're producing, or it's near denominated other users and community members that are coming in to use what they're building. That is so essential to the to, to any type of productive crypto growth mindset. It has to be a win and help win attitude, in my opinion. 100%. And I think one of my favorite exercises that I do both in a product sense and even for my personal life, because I had anger management issues as a child, <laughs> you couldn't tell. One of my favorite exercises that. is around framing. When you identify a problem, always see what is the opportunity because otherwise you start going deeper and deeper into negative mindset and it really messes with your head and then you become one of those people on Twitter. It's a problem. So I think that the problem that I see is society at large is at fault, be it academia, schools, boomer parenting. I don't know exactly what it is. It could be a conglomerate, a mix of many things. But the truth is, A lot of young people are coming out of college with a ton of debt and the pathway that has been painted for them is just get a stable job, any job. Dude, I was at university for seven years and I paid international fees, which is outrageous amounts of money. And we didn't have the money, so I went into a lot of debt. And I couldn't believe that a graduate salary for a lawyer in Australia was $60,000, $70,000. The work hours were so intense, they actually had to pass laws capping how much you can work. And they literally have to pay you extra. And once you start going into overtime, like the conditions were insane. So I guess it it says a lot about things that are predictable and safe and have status and reputation. Because all my friends will tell you, yeah, you start not making that much money and you put in the work, whatever his salary goes up over time. And if you make it till the end and you can partner, speak box. So I guess it, I think my reflection is we also need to have an understanding that if you want to get a person from PWC to come to crypto, you can't expect to pay them the same as they were earning at PWC. Because guess what? It's easier to be at PWC. It's predictable. You know what you're doing. Crypto, we need to be competitive at attracting people.
like this is savage and this is probably about one on us and once again we have to work a bit more on like mindfulness and meditation and remaining focused but just the volatility of the assets related to your portfolio and having a significant part of your net worth in crypto it messes with people like it ages you like yesterday i was simultaneously getting liquidated on matic and having near all-time high (laughs) (laughs) that is not healthy so i think that it has to be taken into account as I think that the longer that you are in the ecosystem, especially as a decision maker and as a funder, you start to take things for granted and it's easy to fall into the trap of just denominate things in USD and trying to come down with an objective value for something. Now you did mention something really interesting that I want to circle back to when you were talking about leadership, because I think that we have a challenge in the ecosystem because every time that we bring in the decentralization element it is no longer clear to anyone what your role is. And leadership can sometimes be associated with it being centralized, but then there not being any leadership is also associated with chaos and things just not going anywhere. So I think that at the moment, it's an interesting exploration with the different groups that I'm involved with. And I recently joined the marketing DAO between being of service to the community because you're representing community funds, which are meant to be dispersed. We've got relatively fair and reasonable and accessible thresholds to hand out money. I think it comes back down to intent, as we said. But on the other hand, we're also exploring ways to just be more active and enable people to grow within the role. Like, Like how, as a decision maker, or even as a person applying for money, how can we normalize the attitude of I actually don't know everything and this application is the best that I could come up with today and it is likely to improve for the next month as I get more experience and as I recruit more people and obviously resources would help me improve but also as a decision maker maybe there is something that you can do to help people improve or even the decision maker themselves we're all in a constant journey to improve how do we normalize learning along the way and sharing those learnings as opposed to having a stiff bureaucratic process and whether you make the cut or not. So resuming the what you were just saying, how do we accompany these people entering the ecosystem and what's the role of leadership with it? I think that it's 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 basically a, a, a balance. It's a balancing process that's going to be constantly rebalanced in which you're going to need strong leadership to inspire and illuminate what people can do and what's possible coupled with individuals or groups of individuals or more senior individuals who are familiar helping more amateur individuals who don't know what's going on to find their way and experience experiment and produce a really good product service whatever with the the funds that they've been allocated it does not happen in a mechanical way and I think that's a big mistake that people make, right? People think, oh, money request comes in, money goes out, everything works out automatically by default, just exactly how I imagined it on my side and their side. No, it never happens that way. If you want it to be successful, you have to run with the people. You got to be in the trenches with them. You have to know them. You have to work with them. You have to you know, check in on them, make them feel like they care, make them feel like that they're valued. And then in parallel to that, they need to be in an atmosphere that cultivates them to say, how can I learn from others of what I'm doing? How can I maximize my impact? How can I get to where I want to get in the future? And then this is the beautiful part about all of it. As this process starts to happen, inevitably, long-term thinking about what's going on just starts to perforate and filter into the minds of these new people coming in. So when the new people come in and they start to realize, man, this is great. They're supporting me. They want to help me succeed. People are giving me tips. The mind will then mechanically say to them, man, imagine if I do this in the future. Imagine if I actually then do this after this. Imagine if I build a whole future in this ecosystem because I feel so fantastic right here. And I'll tell you right now, that has been 100% the proven experience of the DGENs. So I can't even tell you how many DGENs came in one month and we're like, okay, we have to do this, blah, blah, blah. Next month, hey, Ozzy, I had an idea 
of something I wanted to do that's a little bit more than just the DGen thing. And I want to know what, what you thought about this idea, right? It is endemic. It is a part of the process. You get them in, you empower them. They want to do more. They want to build more. They want to be more. It takes off. And this is probably uh, way too late in the conversation, but <laughs> it'd be good to explain what the DGens is. First off, I just want to clarify for non-crypto people listening that there's something beautiful about crypto culture that it being online and pseudonymous and with a strong focus on building, people can have very like uh, liberal, colorful language. So I think that some people may find degens as a short for degenerates to be offensive. But in crypto, it's actually endearing. In many ways, it actually starts as a self-denomination. <laughs> people who have very high risk profile and they're very active and very exposed to market swings. So they denominate themselves as degens. And it's fascinating that we've adopted that as a flag for people that are that committed to the crypto ecosystem and that they really want to push it forward. The degens, as we refer to them, is a specific unit within NIR that has been created to basically have an army of people that are very active, spreading information and knowledge. And I guess it, it's like an unofficial marketing slash customer service arm. So every time there is a product release or a feature release or there's anything that needs to get amplified, there's a team of people that are active on social media, making sure that we are able to pick up and participate in conversations as they happen. Once again, it's incredible that crypto is so fast-paced and there's so much happening that it can actually be a paid position. I don't know if it'd be full-time, but it's certainly remunerated because it can be very time-consuming. And for people that do it well, it's actually quite valuable. So what Ozzy is saying is actually quite interesting because, once again, it's the very first thing that I mentioned in the podcast. I'm extremely grateful. And it captures how I'm not the exception. Anyone can start literally from the very bottom. Most agents are recruited by their active participation. We spot them on Twitter. We spot them on Telegram. We spot them when they write blog posts. You identify people that are very good communicators and that have the interest and the passion to represent the project. And then they become remunerated contributors and then they keep expanding their involvement. I've actually recruited two team members so far to Silicon Craftsman, and I've engaged with a few DGENs when we have the ecosystem calls on Twitter spaces. And what I find fascinating is getting to know people at a personal level, which is largely what this podcast is, but obviously I have these kind of conversations in the real world as well, because it's easy to see people... Once again, this is one of the flaws that we have in the real world that we have to work to overcome. It's very easy to reduce people to their job. And people think that is okay when you have a good job. I struggled for a long time to be reduced to being a lawyer because I wasn't even practicing as a lawyer. Neither did I identify as somebody that practices lawyer. But people that for years after I stopped practicing kept referring to me as a lawyer when they introduced me to someone thought that it was okay because law has prestige. But I've also seen the same happen to people that they dismiss someone for the role. And it's extremely subjective. It's whether the person reducing the individual to their professional path deems it valuable. So I guess it, it's just really interesting to me to explore people's ambition, desires, interests, like more than one DGN three, as far as I'm concerned, they're computer science students. And it is amazing to me that they're able to grow within the near ecosystem. They're able to earn an income while they study. And very soon, we're probably going to lose them as they go up into the more technical roles. People are starting their own projects. There's just so many opportunities. Like, I guess that the message that I'm trying to say, and this is very long-winded, is never assume that what people are doing now is what they're going to be doing forever. Everyone's got that hidden passion and drive. And if you can feel it, growth is unbound. unbound. I think there's a lot of truth in, in that. And I think that it, it ties back into, it ties back into the whole point of don't try to, you don't have to try to control everything. 
the you don't need metrics you don't need to because you don't need to stifle and, and surround and block the domains of things because you could do that if but but that is a very pr- product or results oriented attitude that doesn't tend to work well in highly innovative frontier spaces where it's very unclear where the value is and it's very unclear where the winds are blowing and so I 100% agree with that. And I think the DGENs are my case study and point of kind of proving that model, right? What can you do? How do you really build crypto communities, right? That stick it out through bear and bull. You can do a lot of explicit things, but more importantly than not, once you just start putting people together and they start crafting a vision of a future in this ecosystem, what inadvertently also happens is they, their identity starts to merge with what they're doing. And their identity also starts to merge with the other people they're working with. And when that starts to happen, you actually have another process going on there that's much more deeper and much more important than just the initial, hey, I need you to help build the community kind of stuff. I guess that my only closing remarks, and, and I love playing, I guess, devil's advocate, is the problem in crypto is that there's more money than people. So there is a bias towards opening the doors to anyone. And there's also a bias to compensate generously. And I think that the thing that is always in the back of my head is there needs to be the right formula. We need to have a healthy treasury so that we can attract the very best. And the messaging is clear. Come to us with your ideas, with your skills, with your ambition, with your drive, you know, and grow with us and you'll be compensated generously. But also we need to be somewhat careful of making it seem like it's a handout and we get people that may be coming with the wrong intentions. Because it's interesting how A's hire A's, B's hire C's and D's. The ecosystem grows. And, and, and I think that you've done a great job. And once again, it comes back to culture, it comes back to your personal experiences. You brought in Rin, and it's amazing how you both perform at a very high level. And from your team at Ants, you've spawned all their teams. So once again, I as we scale, I, I, I think constantly about that tension because if we apply it at a micro level, you know, Silicon Craftsman, how can we make sure that we're attracting the best people and give people opportunities before it is obvious that they're the best? We're not going to be getting someone who is a current designer at Adobe and a senior role, but we are getting a lot of people that have design education, that they have a portfolio, that they've been freelancing. They've got a lot of talent. They've got passion. They've got humility. How do we find that balance? We don't want to turn people away because we seem to have very high standards. No, we don't. We have open doors. Anyone can get involved. But at the same time, we need to be able to show up and do good work and to give it a good go and to be willing to improve. But I think that's just a closing remark. We've we've touched on this a fair bit. We do have a couple more questions to move on to. So if you want to add anything on that, otherwise we can move on to the next one. Let's, Let's keep going. I'm loving this. Awesome. So I think that, We have had an amazing conversation on how to identify good talent and how to think of onboarding them, especially some of the inner challenges that we're dealing with as current members of the ecosystem, especially allocating money. Now, the next question is one that anyone would ask. Why would somebody coming into the crypto world Come, should come work for near as opposed to other project. And I guess that the context here is there is a lot of money in crypto broadly. Uh, we're not the only project with the treasury. We're not the only project with grants initiatives. We're not the only project with community. Assuming all things are equal, they could be making the same amount of money anywhere, or I guess removing the money element from the equation. Why near? What makes us special as a community? What is special about the technology? And how would those two things evolve over time? What is your vision? Because I know that you've been involved with Ant since March last year, which is earlier than most. So I guess that you've, you saw something back then and you've seen the evolution since. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Great. Again, going back, it all starts with economic history. That's that's where it all starts. I'm such a geek for like economic history. I'm like, yes. Yeah, and, gonna... and I think what, what you find is so technologies, general purpose technologies like blockchain, they take time to mature, but more importantly, I don't think that they're able to hit escape velocity until they're built in a way that can connect directly with them. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of the first part of the interview with Ozzy Mendias. Now you may be realizing that this is quite a strange part of the interview to cut it off. It is with much pain and regret that I have to confess that we didn't really quite plan to have two different parts for the interview. We have had some unfortunate technical issues. So there is a chance that part two has actually been lost forever. The good news is that we left off at a really good point and I have to get Ozzy back to finish telling us about economic history and near. So thanks so much for listening. We really do truly apologize for leaving you hanging. Please subscribe to the Wild User Interviews podcast on your favorite podcasting platform to receive all the notifications for the new podcast releases.